Pseudopod 169, November 20th, 2009. This week's story, The Disconnected, by David Steffen. This week's Pseudopod is brought to you by Audible.com. Go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash pseudopod to claim your free audiobook. Hi, welcome to Pseudopod, the weekly horror podcast. This week's story comes just from David Steffen, whose previous work has featured in Fantasy Magazine, whilst this story remains unpublished. David lives in Minnesota with his wife and two dogs and works as a software engineer on the good kind of traffic camera. He's a regular on our forums, and you should be too, so why not take a look at David's list of his favourite Pseudopod episodes up on the site and go tell people what yours are. Your narrator this week is Rich Siegfried of Requiem of the Outcast, and... Is that your phone ringing? And if not, why not? Because I have a story for you, and I promise you, it's true. The Disconnected by David Steffen 911, what's your emergency? The operator said. There's a person in my house! Calm down, Miss Abernathy. No one's there with you. Yes, there is. He... I think it's he is lying on the floor in the other room. I almost tripped over him. It could be my husband. He dropped off the grid a while ago, and now I can't find him. I'm sure Tom just ran into some interference, Mrs. Abernathy. Can you look at the man on the floor for me, please? I need to take a closer look. I can't. I can't go back in there. Please, Mrs. Abernathy. No, I told you I can't. Can you just send a policeman? On my way, Officer Harkins said. I'll be there in two minutes. He boarded his car and made the quick flight from across town to Mrs. Abernathy's suburban townhome. He followed her broadcast upstairs. Her emotions were distant. Maybe she was in shock. She pointed him to the master bedroom where a person, man, lay sprawled out on the floor. Why didn't the man have a signature? Who is this? He asked. I can't read him either. Mrs. Abernathy said from the other room. The man's head lay on one side. Harkin gently grabbed the man's chin. He noted the jump in Mrs. Abernathy's adrenaline levels as he did this. He steeled himself for a shock. He still wasn't ready when he looked at the other side of the head and saw the second uncovered ear. A crime. He had to be strong, like his hero from the retro cinemas, Officer Mick Flintlock. What would Flintlock do? Before the answer came to him, he darted to the bathroom and parted with his lunch. Definitely not what Flintlock would do. As he washed his mouth at the sink, he sent out a call. Chief, I need your advice. Got a minute? What do you need, Harkin? Permission to open a private channel for discussion. Absolutely not. I believe in the Open Communications Act, so speak up or shut up. Harkin hesitated. What if he caused a panic? Harkin! He's been disconnected, sir. Tragic. What's your point? This isn't the scene of a car accident, sir. He's in his bedroom, and his phone isn't even here. He could feel more and more people actively tuning into their conversation, waiting silently to see how it played out. The chief hesitated. What are you trying to say? Somebody did this to him. They cut his phone off and took it with them. A collective gasp went up from the listeners. Crime of passion? That's just it. No one knows. Somebody did this on purpose, but no one saw it happen. How is that possible? The chief said. I don't know. They were attracting a growing crowd like a nasty car accident, some from the other side of the world. 
fear was the predominant emotion among the listeners. The fear of the network reflected the fear of the individual and back and forth until the brink of panic. Everyone started talking at once. Harkin's phone hummed against his ear with the effort of sorting, only letting through a sample of the incoming chatter. Who would do such a thing? I did, why didn't he see it coming? I'd rather die than be disconnected. No one could stand to live like that. This is a time for vigilance, the chief said. If it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. I can see two possibilities, Harkin said, based on the fact that there were no witnesses. And no one's going to like either one. One, someone found a way to muffle their own phone signal intentionally in order to commit a crime unseen. Harkin's phone suppressed the outburst of protest so he could clearly hear the chief's reply. I don't believe that. Someone would have seen the person making the device. Someone would see them coming in or out of the interference. Creation or even possession of such a device would be punishable by muting for life. I can only see one other alternative, Harkin said. What? One of the disconnected escaped. The response was even more extreme this time. His phone grew hot against his ear. He hoped there was no limit to the amount of filtering a phone could handle. This time the predominant response was anger. That was good, in a way. The anger helped get the fear back under control. Impossible! It could never happen. Maybe, maybe we've underestimated them, Harkin said. Maybe they're much more capable than we give them credit for. Bad enough my husband, God rest his soul, was disconnected in a wreck all those years ago. You'd suggest there's something intelligent left in that husk? How else could the criminal have gone undetected, Harkin said. The victim would have seen anyone with a phone coming a mile away. And it happened here, in New Phoenix, just miles from the shelter. That's too much to be a coincidence. No one had a reply to that. Can we just check it out? Have the caretaker go to the shelter early for his evening rounds. He can make sure all the disconnected are accounted for. Well, I don't see why not, the chief said. Tim, you up for that? Yeah, I can stop by, Tim the new caretaker said. Thanks, kid, Harkin said. Baba crouched between a pair of dumpsters, watching wildly for signs of pursuit. The cool, damp cement soothed the aches in his bare feet, sore from running. He wished he'd thought to steal some shoes. In one hand, he held the carving knife. In the other hand, he was clutching the man's severed phone so tightly in his fingers, they left imprints in its soft, dead skin. It was a real effort to pull his fingers loose. He dropped it into the dumpster and wiped his hand in a pool of dirty water to get the feel of it off of him. How much time did he have? Four hours until the caretaker's evening rounds? But people would be in a panic now. If the caretaker went early to his rounds, he would discover Baba's empty cell, and then the shit would hit the fan. Baba had the few freedoms he had only because society was too ignorant and arrogant to notice. He shouldn't have come to the city. It wasn't time yet. One mistake now would ruin everything. They would all be confined to their cells, and Baba would never see Topi again. Without her, what was the point of anything? He had to get back to the shelter. There might still be time. Harkin spent the rest of the afternoon arguing about the victim and guessing at the identity of the criminal. 
They scrutinized every detail, but found nothing because there was nothing to find. Finally, the chief released him and he checked in with the caretaker. Tim, are all the disconnected accounted for? I'm just heading over there, Officer Harkin. Just now? It's been hours. I thought you would go right away. I had some errands to run. I'm going early. I don't usually go for evening rounds for another hour. Do you mind if I tag along? I'd like to see the shelter in person, Harkin said. No problem. I could use some company. Just meet me there. In a few minutes, he arrived. The shelter stuck out of the hard, packed dirt like an artifact unearthed by erosion. It was the only facility of its kind, just far enough outside New Phoenix so no one would have to look at it. 102 disconnected from all over the world were confined there. It would contain one more once the afternoon's victim was out of the hospital. The victim of the crime. Harkin joined Tim in the staging room of the shelter, a tiny room filled with equipment. Tim's broadcast was a tangle of emotions. How's your first week on the job? Harkin asked. Fine, I guess. He handed Harkin a stun prod and a fiberglass helmet that would protect his eyes and ears, followed by a thick rubber neck brace and a sturdy vest. Last was a jock strap with a protective cup. I'm glad you volunteered tonight. I'm not sure if I'm ready to go solo again quite yet. Tim pointed to a nasty welt on his own neck before he popped the neck brace in place. This gear saved my life. Uh, but it still hurts to swallow. He pushed the inner door open with a click. They stood at one end of a long hallway, lined with glass rooms, most occupied by leashed disconnected. Before they started Tim's rounds, they did a quick walkthrough of the facility, which was just more hallways of glass rooms all on one end. Some of the disconnected looked out at them. Others were sleeping or eating. All disconnected present and accounted for, Tim said. See, Harkin, the chief said. There's no way it could have been a disconnected. Eh, you're probably right, Chief. They walked back to the staging room to grab Tim's cleaning cart. Why are all the disconnected naked? Harkin asked. You want to put clothes on them? They'd never stay clean then. I'd have to sedate them to dress and undress them, and what would be the point? I suppose you're right. It just seems so disrespectful. Each of them had been a person once, with a family. Tim pushed open the door to the first cell. I thought you said their cells were secured. How do you keep them from getting out? Well, they're not secured from letting people in, just from letting people out. He pointed at a pad on the inner side of the door with rows of buttons on it. Phone activated lock. To get out, all I have to do is tell the door to unlock. In this first room, the disconnected, a male, was curled up on the cot. Tim grabbed a shovel from the cleaning cart and scooped up the tidy pile of poop against the wall halfway between the cot and the door. Why doesn't it stink in here? Harkin asked. And we put something in their food that makes the smell go away. He used a different shovel to scoop a load of grisly gruel into a trough on the ground. This guy's been well behaved, so he gets some extra. He gathered his things back together. Open, he said to the door. The door unlocked and they moved on to the next cell. I've been thinking about what I want to do next year, Tim said. Each caretaker served for a year and then was allowed to choose his own path. Most become major celebrities, supporting their own legislation projects. I want to sponsor research on phone attachments in adults. As he talked, he continued to scoop. This cell was littered with dung, scattered all over the floors and walls. Well, that's impossible. The human phone symbiosis begins at birth. 
Even if you get a phone to attach to an adult, it would never work properly. I'm still going to try. Maybe it would give those poor broken souls something to live for. Tim leaned close to the cot to scoop up a pile tucked underneath. Look out! Harkin said. The disconnected on the bed leaped at Tim with a snarl, knocking him to the ground. She sat on his stomach and dug at his helmet and neck brace, but her jagged fingernails couldn't penetrate the heavy rubber. Harkin got her with the stun prod. Twitching uncontrollably, she fell over onto the floor. Tim jumped to his feet, grabbed his shovel, and pulled Harkin out of the cell. Thanks! Oh, Tim said. I should have seen that coming. They moved on to the next cell without cleaning up the remaining waste or refilling her food. Baba rolled off the cot and picked up the gravelly mush left for him. The caretaker had left more than usual today, a good sign that Baba's disappearance had gone unnoticed. Baba had run all the way back to the shelter and had been very surprised to find nothing out of the ordinary. He had rushed the other disconnected back into their cells and still had 30 minutes to spare before the caretaker arrived. Baba watched the caretaker and the newcomer move purposely in the next cell. The caretaker turned in his direction for a moment, and Baba flinched away from the man's eyes as they swept over him. Had they lingered for a moment on him? No. The caretaker continued about his business. Baba must be jumping at shadows. Who was the newcomer? Had policies changed? Were there two caretakers now? Baba forced himself to watch as they punished the woman in the next cell. He tucked away his anger at their ignorance and cruelty for a time that he could use it. All the caretaker accomplished was the recruitment of one more to Baba's cause. The woman had fire in her. She might be one of those able to recover full brain function. When she learned how to escape her cell, he would teach her the new language. Once the caretaker and the newcomer finished their evening rounds and left, Baba counted to 300 before he unhooked his leash. Rising on the bed, he grasped the edges of the window frame and gently pulled it loose from the wall. The designers of the shelter had had the foresight to use unbreakable glass, but the window was only held in place by mortar. All it had taken was patient scraping with the metal tongue of his leash, combined with concealment of the loosened mortar chunks in his own feces, and now he was free to come and go as he pleased. He jumped out the window and circled back around to the front of the shelter. He savored the night air and the feel of dirt between his toes. He grabbed a large stone as he walked. Into the front door and back to his cell. He propped the cell door open with a rock and slipped inside to return the window to its proper place. Best to do that now in case he had to return in a rush. Then he grabbed the rock and went to see his beloved Topi. She waved him in when she saw him looking in her cell. She sat cross-legged on her cot and patted the spot next to her amiably. He propped her door open with the rock before plopping down and leaning in for a kiss. Maybe they could have sex again. Sex as it disconnected was terrifying and exciting, like flying by instrument for the first time. Without a direct link to the other's mind, you had to read the body language and learn. She pushed him away and scooted down the cot. She was frowning. Was she unhappy? Was she mad that he'd left for the day without her? He tapped her on the shoulder. She didn't respond. He pulled her close to him. She resisted at first, then softened, leaned on his shoulder and started bawling. He patted her back and stroked her hair, the only thing he knew to do. After long minutes, her sobs died away. He lifted her face up so he could look at her and tapped her between the eyes to ask her what she was thinking about. 
She took a moment to respond. The new language was still so primitive. She made eye contact with them to be sure he was watching, then motioned with her hands as though she had a huge belly. She was worried she was getting fat? He shook his head and pushed her hand so it touched her real belly. Then he nodded. She shook her head and lifted his hand away. She linked her arms together and moved them back and forth as though rocking a baby to sleep. A baby? A little person? With a bit of each of them? That could live? His stomach turned to acid when he realized the child would live, but society would take it away and attach a phone. It would be just like everyone else. It would never even know its parents were disconnected. Baba and Topi's eyes met again, and he saw the understanding in her eyes. They had to get her out before she began to show. But how could they do it without raising the alarm? The disconnected were nowhere near ready for a full-scale rebellion yet. Only a few others had learned even basic commands, and the language hadn't developed enough complexity. They just weren't ready. But it didn't matter. Something needed to be done, and soon. But it would wait until tomorrow. Tonight, he would spend the night with her. He had been in love once before, and had thought the feeling was mutual. They'd married, but once he was disconnected, she'd never visited him. Not even once. It had been something like five years, but it felt like forever. He hugged Topi close, and together they fell asleep. Harkin knew a disconnected had been behind yesterday's attack. Maybe he was wrong, but if he was right, it was worse than even he had feared. A man on foot could have run to the shelter before he and Tim arrived. But if it was a disconnected... That implied intelligence. The kind of intelligence it took to re-imprison oneself in order to keep a measure of freedom. He stopped to grab a large coffee as he started his patrol. He hadn't slept well last night, and he wanted to be alert if someone or something dangerous was still on the loose. Help! Howard Pruitt shouted. My wife's been disconnected! Come quick! Harkin skipped the coffee and hopped in his car. I need a thorough search, Harkin said. Leave no street unwatched, no hole unsearched, now. Everyone in the area dropped what they were doing. They searched for an hour, but turned up nothing. The level of fear on the network was high, but had not yet reached the stage of panic. People tried to ignore it as they returned to their everyday concerns. Baba made it back to the shelter with two hours to spare before evening rounds. Two breathless hours in the victim's furnace room, and another two hauling the unconscious woman across the open ground outside the city. Luckily, no one was particularly vigilant, even after a crime. They were used to being force-fed information, not having to seek it for themselves. He saw a figure waiting outside the shelter, and he stopped dead in his tracks. For a moment, in the twilight, he'd thought it was the caretaker, but no, it was Topi. He set his burden down to greet her. She returned the greeting with a slap that made his ears ring. He met her eyes, and she slapped him again, with her whole weight behind it. A surge of anger threatened to rise to the surface, but he held it back. He must keep it inside until it was needed. He hugged her tight until she stopped straining against him, then gently extended his arms to get a better look at her face. Her anger seemed to have subsided for the moment 
so he let her go. She gestured emphatically at the woman on the ground. She reached down and pointed at one bare ear, then the other. Then she pointed fiercely at Baba. She knew he was responsible. Baba nodded his head and pointed at Topi's stomach. She showed no reaction, so he made the round belly pregnant gesture. He was doing this for the baby. Why didn't she understand? A moving spark of light in the twilight sky caught his eye. It was headed straight for the shelter. The caretaker? Two hours early? He pointed it out to Topi. She tensed to run, but he grabbed her by the shoulder. The entrance was on the other side of the building. The visitor would land and head towards the building before the two of them would be able to make it to the door. They peered around the corner as the car came in for a landing. Harkin was busy for hours tying up the loose ends with the Pruitt case before he was free to leave. He hopped in his squad car and headed out. Where are you going? the chief said. I'm heading to the shelter. Don't do anything stupid. We need you back in one piece. I won't, sir, he said as he landed. Just a quick in and out. The intruder was the other man who had come the day before. Baba pulled out his stolen carving knife from where he had concealed it in the woman's clothes. As he crept up behind the man, he let down the barriers that kept the constant anger at bay. All those wasted years, dignity stripped away, treated like the lowest of animals. Baba raised the blade and chopped down sharply, but Topi shouted and pulled at his arm. The man spun as Baba's cut was pulled to the side. The blade missed the phone entirely, but left a shallow wound in the man's scalp. The man fell, blood spraying from the head wound. Baba pushed Topi away and quickly severed the man's phone. I was right, was Harkin's last broadcast, accompanied with a sort of desperate courage, then pain and darkness. Harkin, are you there? Harkin! The chief's shouts received no reply. I want every officer in the vicinity to report to the shelter! He rebroadcast the last video Harkin had sent. A male, disconnected, indistinct in the twilight, stood over Harkin before viciously swinging, blade in hand. Baba shook Topi to snap her out of her daze. He gestured repeatedly to the shelter, then to her, then to the shelter. She watched him with glazed eyes. Nadok! Nadok! He shouted their warning word for the caretaker, the one they used when they needed to return to their cells. She seemed to wake then, and she grasped his hand to pull him along. He pushed her towards the shelter and started his jog toward the city. He had to be the decoy. Baba! She shouted. He turned. She gestured for him to come with her. He shook his head emphatically and waved her back toward the shelter, then cradled his arms. He came back to her for a moment, just long enough for a last embrace and a kiss. Then he wiped his feet in the blood pooled on the ground and was gone into the darkening night. Toby peered around the corner. The police force split, some following Baba's bloody footprints, others flying toward the city in their cars. When they were all gone, Toby turned to the dirty work that lay ahead of her. Baba wouldn't be coming back. It was her duty to make sure his sacrifice wasn't for nothing. Baba was wrong to do what he had done. He had used Topi as an excuse. But she had to deal with the situation as it was, and Baba had left her an opportunity. With Baba's knife held in her teeth, she grabbed the comatose woman by her wrists and began dragging her around to the entrance of the shelter.
Slipping past the police at the perimeter was easy work. They were first responders and they had no training to deal with dangerous criminals. Not only that, but a dozen officers were all that was normally required by even a big city like New Phoenix. The policemen scattered their cars at intervals along the city limits closest to the shelter, but cautiously left their emergency flashers on to avoid accidents. All Baba had to do was skirt around them. He snuck through, then doubled back. From the cover of an alley, he saw two officers standing by one of the police cars, constantly moving their heads to watch for threats. One of them had a stun prod. Where had they found it? Animal control? Baba charged at the one with the prod. The cop's reflexes were better than he expected. The cop lowered the prod to stomach level where he could easily disable Baba. At the last moment, Baba dived. Gravel tore open gashes all over the front of his body. But he made it under the prod, and his momentum carried him into the officer's shins. The officer's weight fell on Baba's legs and stopped his slide. He pulled himself free from the dazed officer's heavy weight. There was the prod, not far from the cop's outstretched hand. The cop saw it, too, and reached. Baba got there first. He scooped it up before being pushed to the ground by the other officer. Baba flipped over and used the prod to stun both of them. With those two incapacitated, Baba ran into the city as fast as he could. They lost him. They were right by Lamont Street. He can't be far from there yet. Oh, quick! You've got to find him or he'll lose himself in the city! The level of fear on the network rose higher than ever and finally crossed the threshold into panic. Civilians ran from their homes. Every street, intersection, and house within a mile was watched by frightened eyes. It didn't take long at all to find him. There he is! On Jameson, a ring of citizens formed around the disconnected man, three deep. The circle of the crowd closed slowly on him. No one wanted to be the first to reach him. The disconnected charged straight into their midst, using fingernails and elbows and prod with no conscience. He broke through the loose ring and headed to the next street with the crowd in pursuit. Somebody get him! Sally Baker, a single mother flying home with a load of groceries, saw an opportunity. She hesitated. Do it! Someone shouted to her. I can't, she said. That would be murder! Another voice joined in, merging with the first. He's a disconnected. You would be a mercy to him. How can I be sure? She said. No one's safe till he's out of the picture. I I can't. Who's next, Sally? Your daughter? Do you want to see Annie end up like him? More voices joined in, speaking in unison, a chorus urging her on. Finish it! Now! She surrendered to it. Through the eyes of the mob, she saw her car drop altitude and zoom along the narrow suburban street. It flew overhead and started to descend, carefully matching speeds with her target. The engine, not designed for slow speeds, cut out and the car dropped like a rock onto the lone disconnected, crushing him into the ground. The restraints dug against her shoulders as the car bounced off the pavement, and the impact sounded like a crack of thunder. The crushed human remains, still warm, stretched between the car and the road like taffy before the car hit the ground again. It slid to a stop with a metallic shriek, leaving a long smear of blood and crushed organs behind. It was over in a moment, but she would never be free of the nightmares. After the rogue disconnected was taken care of, Tim arrived at the shelter. All the other 101 disconnected were still confined in their rooms. The newly vacant room's lock was in shreds, cut to pieces by the carving knife abandoned on the ground nearby. But where did he get the knife? 
Tim asked. No one could answer him. Toby tugged at the collar of her stolen dress. She had longed for clothes for years. Funny that they would chafe now that she had them. No search parties pursued her. No panic. Her part of the plan must have succeeded. She didn't like leaving the other disconnected behind, but her first responsibility was to the baby. The others would have to survive on their own for now. Someday she would come back. She stood there a long time, rubbing her belly and looking at the lights of the shelter. She cried for Baba, thanked him for his sacrifice, cursing him for his ignorance. Finally, she left and began her search for a new home. Couldn't happen, could it? I mean, come on, why would having a phone become a means of defining citizen and non-citizen, human and subhuman? Why should having the latest phone have any impact on your social status? I mean, it's not like I use my phone to check email, listen to mp3s, look at the web, take pictures, read books, play games, or very, very occasionally make phone calls, is it? Oh. Yeah. There's an advertising campaign over here for a cool plan which you only get if you have 50 friends. The actual tagline for the thing is for popular people. Now, aside from the supreme asshattery of effectively marketing your phone directly at snobby elitists who, chances are, are only friends with other snobby elitists, the idea that this is the plan for the cool kids is actually profoundly offensive. Because fundamentally what they're talking about is restricting the right to communicate cheaply to people cool enough to afford it, and that right should be inalienable, should be untouchable, especially in an age where the internet allows for instantaneous communication with pretty much everywhere on the planet. Now, if you'll excuse me, I just need to climb down off my soapbox and download some mp3s to my phone whilst taking pictures and texting about how awesome I am in lolspeak, because that's how I roll. But before I go, let's speak for a moment about holistic detection. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency and the Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul are, and this is a bit blasphemous, I know, probably my favourite Douglas Adams books. Dirk's combination of cheerful acceptance of the impossible and grumpy resentment of the mundane is very endearing, and the plots are both intricate and remarkably disciplined. Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul is especially good, fusing fantasy and horror in a story of advertising gone wrong, Norse gods who are a little afraid of flying, and Dirk's ongoing war with the man who writes the local paper's horoscope and who hates him. The BBC radio versions of both books are great, with Harry Enfield playing Dirk almost as a Dick Barton-esque figure, a square-jawed but slightly rubbish hero who's found himself 50 years out of his time and is more than a little narked about it. Great fun, highly recommended in just two of Audible's tens of thousands of titles. Go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash pseudopod to claim your free audiobook. Pseudopod relies on urban myth, sort of like the Candyman, only less stabby, and donations to keep going. So you can either spread the word that if you say our name six times into the mirror and will appear dressed as Scooby-Doo ghosts, or you can donate some money to help pay authors and cover server costs. Better still, why not do both? Pseudopod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. And Pseudopod had some trouble in the early hours, so we stopped it dead for a beat or two. <laughs>